Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Vikram Chandra. It's a great pleasure uh, to introduce Isabel Allende tonight. And I should begin by saying it's impossible to introduce Isabel Allende. Um, here are some numbers about her. She's written 19 books which have been translated into 35 languages and have sold more than 57 million copies. She holds 12 international honorary doctorates, has won more than 50 awards in more than 15 countries, and apart from two international movies, her works have been adapted for plays, musicals, operas, ballets, and radio programs. So attempting to summarize the story of this particular life in a couple of minutes would be foolish, so I'm just going to give you the barest outlines. She was born in Peru to Chilean parents. In addition to writing fiction, she's worked as a journalist and taught Latin American literature and creative writing at numerous universities, including here at Cal. She published her first novel, House of the Spirits, in 1982. Uh, The book is about three generations of women, grandmother, mother, daughter, set against the turbulent backdrop of a South American country caught between revolution and dictatorship, liberation and suppression. And that's the first I read of her, and I still remember it as if it were yesterday. Um, A reviewer in the San Francisco Chronicle wrote that the novel was nothing of astonishing, nothing short of astonishing. (laughs) Both. (laughs) All right. (laughs) It was astonishing. That's what I thought. In the House of the Spirits, Isabella Allende has indeed shown us the relationships between past and present, family and nation, city and country, spiritual and political values. She has done so with enormous imagination, sensitivity, and compassion. So the novel immediately established Isabel as one of the preeminent voices emerging from Latin America, and since then, her literary output has included novels and memoirs which have found readers across the globe. She has founded and run the Isabel Allende Foundation, which works internationally towards the empowerment of women and girls. And she has said, I quote, my most significant achievements are not my books, but the love I share with a few people, especially my family, and the ways in which I have tried to help others. Please join me in welcoming Isabel Allende. You know, I had planned to read from my new novel, which is called El Cuaderno de Maya, but uh, it's not available in English, only in Spanish. It should be available in English, but the translator has taken such a long time that by the time it's published, it will be a historical novel. (laughs) And I I don't have any idea when it will be published, so I will read from The Island Beneath the Sea, this book, which is the latest in English. And uh, um, I should first explain a little bit what the story is about, otherwise you, you won't understand anything of what I read. Um, this is the, the story of a young woman slave 200 years ago in what is today Haiti and was at the time a French colony called um, Saint-Domingue and it was the richest colony that France had in the world. Uh, it had plantations of um, sugar mainly but also tobacco, indigo and other things. And it, was, it had 24,000 whites that run the island and half a million African slaves, 
whose life expectancy in the fields was between four and six years. They were brought in like, like cattle, and those that survived were sold. They were sent to these plantations, and um, the idea was to work them to death and then replace them, because it was much cheaper to replace them than to give them a humane treatment. I wasn't planning to write about slavery when I started. I, was, I wanted to write about the pirates of the Caribbean, but then the movies came out, and then I, I, so I couldn't write about that. The movies would be much better anyhow. So, um, so I ended up researching about the pirates and about New Orleans and all that, the Caribbean, and then I ended up in Haiti, and the story was so fascinating and so horrible of these people that suffered incredible fates. And then, eventually, they rebelled. The, the choice was to rebel or to die. There was no other choice. And so, eventually, they managed to communicate, and they rebelled. The, the, the fact that they got together is astounding, because they came from different places in Africa, and they spoke different languages. They had different religions. And when they got there, people would be very careful not to buy slaves from the same place. The idea was to scatter them around the island so that they would not uh, form groups which would empower them. What really got them together, and this is fascinating, was a spiritual belief, and that was voodoo. The idea we have of voodoo is the Hollywood idea of the zombies, and, uh, and we, we don't know anything about that religion. But it is very interesting because it's a religion that has one god only, and then it has loas, minor gods, which would be like the saints in the Catholic Church, um, that communicate with people. And there are saints for everything, saint, like in the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, we have St. Anthony to get you a, a, a bride, for example, and except you have different saints. The same are the loas. And somehow, this religion, voodoo, united people, and they were able to communicate, and finally, they rebelled in a place called Boac Caiman. Boac Caiman is a forest, was a forest, now there's nothing left of it. And in that place, the, the slaves, called by the drums, came from different plantations at night. They gathered there, and something magical happened. An old woman um, whose identity history has not recorded was, fell in trance, and in trance she appointed the chiefs for the war. She was possessed by the god Ogun, and he told her who the chiefs would be. Toussaint Louverture, who ended up being the chief, was not among the ones appointed by her. He came later. He joined the revolution later also. So this, my story, uh, well, the part that I'm going to read is after this happened in Boacayman. The rebellion has already started, and the, the slaves are in arms, and they are burning the plantations and killing all the whites. So the whites are escaping, and Napoleon has sent to the island 30,000 men of his best troops to um, end this revolt, and he couldn't do it. The, the, Half of the, of the troops died in the first month of malaria and other illnesses. Uh, and my slave, she's called Zarite, and she's called Tete by everybody. She was bought when she was nine years old as the domestic servant in a plantation. 
She was supposed to be the, the maid of the maitres of the plantation. She was a Spanish woman called Doña Eugenia who ended up turning mad. She went mad, which happened a lot, by the way, especially to women, because they were in these isolated places living in terror. If the slaves lived in terror, the whites did too, because there had been many cases of poisoning and, and rebellions, many bouts of rebellion, and so they were always scared that they would end up being assassinated by their own slaves or, or poisoned. So she ended up she was called the mad woman in the book because she ends up dying mad. She had one son called Maurice from her husband, Valmorin. And this white boy also grows up in terror with a mad woman and a father that is trying to control the slaves in the plantation, and he sees horrors. But he has to take this woman, this African young woman, who raises him like her own child and adores him, really. And then she gets pregnant by the master, has a child. The child is taken away the day of the birth. She, she doesn't have time to even look at her child, and it's given away. And then later, she gets pregnant again. But in the meantime, she meets a boy, a young slave that has been just brought into the plantation and has already been flogged and tortured. It's just an awful sight. And she initiates the boy sexually and falls in love with him and he with her. He's called Gambo. So what I'm going to read is after a year that Gambo has escaped um, from, from the plantation and has joined the rebels. And she's still in the plantation with her master, Valmorin, and she's taking care of Maurice and she has given birth to Rosette, a child that she thought was Gambos, but when she sees the child, she realizes that it's really from the master because it's half white. And so this is what happens. Ah, by the way, uh, afterward, I'm going to answer questions, sign everything you've got, my books, other people's books, <laughs> checkbooks, whatever you have. <laughs> but I'm not going to write long dedications for the grandmother. Is there any people who speak Spanish here? Oh, God, this is going to be awful. I'm going to repeat in Spanish because you never listen. Sin dedicatoria para la abuelita. Por favor, nada más que la firma y eso. Okay? And you can take all the pictures you want, but I can't pose for every picture, not because I don't have time, but because I look awful in cellular phone pictures. Okay, let's get going here. That is how things were the summer of the following year, when one night, Tete suddenly waked with a firm hand over her mouth. She thought it was finally the attack on the plantation they had feared for so long, and prayed that death would be quick, at least for Maurice and Rosette sleeping beside her. She waited without trying to defend herself to keep from waking the children, and also from the remote possibility that it was all a nightmare, until she could make out a figure bending over her in the light reflected from the patio torches filtering through the wax paper at the window. <clears throat> she did not recognize the person because the boy had changed in the year and a half they had been separated. But then he whispered her name, Zarite, 
and she felt a flash in her breast, not of terror, but joy. She raised her hands to pull him to her <clears throat> and felt the metal of the knife he held between his teeth. She took it from him, and he, with a moan, dropped down upon the body that shifted to receive him. Gambo's lips sought hers with a thirst, stored up during a long absence. His tongue found the way into her mouth, and his hands grasped her breast through the light shift. She felt him hard between her thighs and open to him, but she remembered the children she had for a moment forgotten and pushed him away. Come with me, she whispered. They got up with care and stepped over Maurice. Gambo recovered his knife and put it in the strip of goat leather at his waist as she closed the mosquito netting to protect the children. Tete made a sign to him to wait and went out to be sure the master was in his room, just as she had left him a couple of hours earlier then blew out the lamp in the corridor and went back for her lover. Feeling her way, she led him to the mad woman's room on the other side of the house, empty since her death. Arms around each other, they fell upon the matches smelling of moisture and, and abandon and made love in the darkness, in total silence, choked with unspoken words and shouts of pleasure that evaporated into sighs. During his absence, Gambo had found relief with other women in the camps, but he had not been able to state his, state his appetite for unsatisfied love. He was 17 years old and lived in flames of persistent desire for Sarite. He remembered her tall, abounding, generous, but now she was smaller than he, and her breasts, which then had seemed enormous, fit easily into his hands. Zarité became foam beneath him. In the anguish and voracity of love so long contained, he was not quick enough to penetrate her, and in an instant his life escaped in a single burst. He sank into the void until Zarité's hot breath in his ear brought him back to the mad woman's room. She hummed to him, lightly patting his back, as she did with Maurice to console him, and when she felt he was beginning to return to life, she turned him over on the bed, immobilized him with a hand on his belly, and with the other, along with her lips and hungry tongue, massaged and sucked him, lifting him to the firmament where he was lost among the racing stars of love, as he had been, as he had imagined, at every instant of repose, and in every pause of battle, and in every misty dawn in the millinery canyons of the Indian chiefs, where he had so many times stood guard. Unable to submit any longer, the boy lifted Tete by the waist, and she swung astride him, ramming into herself that burning member she had so longed for, bending down to cover his face with kisses, lick his ears, caress him with her nipples, rock on his hips, squeeze him between her Amazon thighs, undulating like an eel on the sandy floor of the sea. They romped as if it were the first and the last time, inventing new steps in an ancient dance. The air in the room became saturated with the fragrance of semen and sweat, and with the prudent 
violence of pleasure and the lacerations of love. With smothered moans, silence, laughter, desperate attacks, and nearly dying panting that in the instant changed into happy kisses. Perhaps they did nothing they had not done with others, but it is very different to make love loving. Exhausted with happiness, they fell into sleep, pressed together in a knot of arms and legs, stunned by the heavy heat of the July night. Gambo waved, waked after a few minutes, frightened for having let down his guard. But when he heard the abandoned woman purring in her sleep, he gave himself time to lightly run his hand over her without waking her and to take note of the changes in that body that when he left had been misshapen with child. Her breast still held milk, but they were less firm. The nipples distended, her waist seemed very slim, but he did not remember how it had been before her pregnancy. Her belly, her hips, her buttocks and thighs were pure opulence and smoothness. Tete's scent had also changed. She no longer smelled of soap, but of milk. And in that moment, she was imbued with their blended odors. He sank his nose onto her neck, feeling the blood running in her veins, the rhythm of her breathing, the beating of her heart. Tete stretched with a long, satisfied sigh. She was dreaming of Gambo, and it took her an instant to realize that they were actually together, and she did not have to imagine him. I came to look for you, Sarite. It's time for us to go, Gambo whispered. He explained that he had not been able to come earlier because he didn't have anywhere to take her. But now he could not wait any longer. He didn't know if the whites would be able to crush the rebellion, but they would have to kill the last Negro before they could proclaim victory. None of the rebels was prepared to be a slave again. Death was on the loose and lying in wait across the island. There was no safe corner, but worse than fear and war was for them to continue to be apart. He told her he did not trust the chiefs, not even to Saint-Louverture. He owed them nothing and planned to fight in his own way, changing bands or deserting, according to how things went. For a while, they could live together in his camp, he told her. He had built an ajupa with poles and palm leaves, and they would not lack for food. Though she was used to the comforts of the white man's house, all he could offer was a hard life, but she would not be sorry, because once you taste freedom, you can never turn back. He felt the hot tears on Tete's face. I can't leave the children, Gambo, she told him. We will take my son with me. She's a girl. Her name is Rosette, and she isn't your daughter. She's the daughter of the maître. Gambo sat up, surprised. In that year and a half thinking about his son, the black boy in Tete's womb, named Honoré, the possibility that he was the mulatta girl child of the master had never crossed his mind. We can't take Maurice because he's white, nor Rosette, for she's too small to survive hardship, Tete explained. You have to come with me, Sarite, and it has to be tonight. Tomorrow will be too late. Those are the white man's children. Forget them. Think of us and the children that we will have. 
Think of freedom. Why do you say that tomorrow will be too late? She asked, wiping away tears with the back of her hand. Because the plantation will be attacked. It is the last one left. All the rest have been destroyed. Then she understood the magnitude of what Gambo was asking. It was much more than leaving the children. It was to abandon them to a horrible fate. She turned to him with an anger as intense as the passion of minutes before. She would never leave them, not for him and not for freedom. Gambo held her tight against his chest, as if he meant to pick her up and carry her. He told her that Maurice was lost at any rate, but in the camp they would accept Rosette as long as she was not too light-skinned. Neither of them would survive among the rebels, Gambo. The only way to save them is for the maître to take them. I'm sure he will protect Maurice with his life, but not Rosette. There's no time for that. Your master is already a corpse, Sarité, he replied. If he dies, the children die too. We have to make all three away from Saint-Lazare before dawn. If you don't want to help me, I will do it alone, Tete decided, pulling on her shift in the darkness. Her plan was of childish simplicity, but she presented it with such determination that Gambo finally agreed. He could not force her to go with him, and neither could he leave her. He knew the area. He was used to hiding out. He could move it at night, escape danger, and defend himself, but she could not. Do you think the white man will agree to this? He asked finally. What choice does he have? If he stays, he and Maurice will be disemboweled. Not only will he accept, he will pay a good price. Wait for me here. Sorry. And now this is Arite speaking. My body was hot and moist, my face swollen with kisses and tears, and my skin scented with what I had done with Gambo, but I didn't care. In the corridor, I lighted one of the oil lamps, went to the maître's room, and entered without knocking, something I had never done before. I found him limp with liquor, lying on his back, his mouth gapping open, a thread of saliva down his chin. He had a two-day beard, and his pale hair was wild. Suddenly, all the repulsion I felt for him seized me, and I thought I was going to vomit. My presence and the light took an instant to penetrate the fog of the cognac. He waked with a cry and with one quick move pulled out the pistol he kept beneath the pillow. When he recognized me, he lowered the gun but did not put it down. What is it, Tete? he said with a tone of rebuke and jumped out of bed. I have come to propose something to you, Maître, I told him. My voice did not tremble, nor did the lamp in my hand. He didn't ask me how it had occurred to me to wake him in the middle of the night. He sensed that it had to be something very serious. He sat on the edge of the bed with a pistol on his knees, and I explained that within hours, rebels would attack the plantation. It was useless to alert Cambrai and the guards. It would take an army to hold them back. Just as everywhere else, his slaves would join the attackers. There would be a slaughter and a fire, and that was why we had to flee immediately with the children, or tomorrow we would be dead. And that would be the good fate. 
worse would be to be dying slowly in horrible pain. This is how I told him. And how did I know? He asked. One of your slaves who escaped more than a year ago came back to warn me. And he was going to lead us because alone we would never reach Le Cap. The region was in the hands of the rebels. Who is he? He asked while he hurriedly threw on some clothes. His name is Gambo, and he is my lover. He slapped me so hard that I was dazed, but when he started to hit me again, I grabbed his wrist with a strength I didn't know I had. Up to that very moment, I had never looked at him in the eye, and I didn't know that he had light-colored eyes like cloudy sky. We are going to try to save you and Maurice, but the price will be my freedom and Rosette's. I told him, enunciating every word very clearly so that he would understand. He dug his fingers into my arms, and his face was menacingly close to mine. He ground his teeth, and he cursed me. His eyes were bulging with rage. A long, eternal moment passed. Again, I felt nauseated, but I did not drop my eyes. At last, he sat back with his head in his hands, defeated. You go with that bastard. You don't need me to free you. And Maurice, you can't protect him. I don't want to live always running away. I want to be free. Very well, you will have what you ask. Come, hurry up, get dressed, and get the children ready. Where is the slave? He's not a slave any longer. I will call him. But first, you will write me the paper that will free me and Rosette. Without another word, he sat down on his desk, took a piece of paper and hurriedly wrote, dried the ink with talc, blew it, then imprinted his ring on the sealing wax, as I had always seen him do with important documents. He read it to me aloud, since I couldn't read. My throat clutched and my heart began to pound in my chest. That sheet of paper had the power to change my and my daughter's lives. I folded it four times and put it in the little pouch of Doña Eugenia's rosary. I always wore around my neck beneath my blouse. I had to leave the rosary and hope that Doña Eugenia would forgive me. Now give me the pistol, I asked. He did not want to let go of the weapon. He explained that he did not mean to use it against Gambo because he was our only means of salvation. I do not remember very well how we got organized, but within a few minutes he was armed with two additional pistols and had collected the gold from the, from the office while I gave the children laudanum from one of Doña Eugenia's blue vials that we had kept. They were knocked out, and I was afraid I had given them too much. I didn't worry about the field slaves. Tomorrow would be their first day of freedom. But those... in but in those attacks, the fate of the domestics was usually as atrocious as that of the masters. Gambo decided to warn Tante Mathilde, the cook, because she had provided him an advantage of several hours when he had run away a year and a half before. And she had been punished severely for it. Now it was up to him to return the favor. Within a half hour, when we were far enough away, she would gather the domestics and go mix with the field slaves. I tied Maurice to his father's back, handed two packets of provisions to Gambo, and strapped on Rosette. 
The master thought it was madness to leave on foot. We could take horses from the stables, but according to Gambo, that would attract the vigilantes, and the route that we were ta- going to take was not for horses. We crossed the patio in the shadow of buildings, stayed away from the Coconut Palm Avenue where there were guards, and started toward the cane fields. The hideouts, long, the hideous, long-tailed rats that infest the fields scurried ahead of us. The master hesitated. Gambo put his knife to his throat, but did not kill him because I held his arm. We needed him to protect the children. This I reminded him. We plunged into the spine-chilling hiss of the cane blown by the wind, whistling knife clickings, demons hidden in the tall stacks, snakes, scorpions, a labyrinth in which sounds are distorted and distances curl and twist and a person can get lost forever. And even if he yells and yells, he will never be found. For that reason, the fields are divided into carres or blocks, and are always cut from the edges toward the center. One of Cambrai's punishments consisted of of leaving a slave in the fields at night and at dawn losing the the dogs after him. I do not know how Gambo led us through, maybe by instinct, or perhaps from experience stealing in other plantations. We walked in a line, close together in order not to be lost, protecting ourselves as we could from the knife-edged leaves, until finally, after quite some time, we left the plantation and entered the jungle. We walked for hours, but made little progress. At dawn, we could clearly see the orange sky of the, fir- of the fire at the plantation Saint Lazare, and were choked by the bidding sweet smoke carried on in the wind. The sleeping children weighed like stones on our backs. Erzuli, Mother Loa, Come to our aid, I prayed. I have always gone about without shoes, but I was not accustomed to that terrain. My feet were bleeding. I was falling with fatigue. In contrast, my master, 20 years older than I, was working without stopping with Maurice, Maurice weight on his back. Finally, Gambo, the youngest and strongest of our three, said we must rest. He helped us untie the children, and we laid them on a pile of leaves, after poking it with a stick to frighten off snakes. Gambo wanted the master's pistols, but Valmoran convinced him that they were more useful in his hands, since Gambo knew nothing about such weapons. They made a pact that Gambo would carry one and the master two. We were near the swamp, and light barely shone through the leaves. The air was like hot water. The mud could, be, could swallow a man in minutes, but Gambo did not seem disturbed. He found a pool. We drank, wet our clothing and that of the children, who were still sleeping hard. We shared some bread from the provisions and rested a bit. Soon Gambo started us again, and the master, who had never taken orders in his life, obeyed without a word. The swamps were not a quagmire as I had imagined, but dirty, stagnant water and foul-smelling vapors. The ground was mud. I thought about Doña Eugenia, my mistress, who would rather have fallen into the rebels' hands than pass through that dense fog of mosquitoes. Fortunately, she was already in the Christian's heaven. Gambo knew the trail, but it wasn't easy to follow him carrying the weight of the children. 
Erzuli, Loa of Water, come to our aid, I prayed again. Gambon did the tignon around my head, wrapped my feet in leaves, and bound them with a cloth. The master was wearing tall boots, and Gambo believed that the fangs of jungle creatures could not penetrate the hard soles of his feet. We went on. Maurice was the first to wake when we were still in the swamp, and he was frightened. When Rosette woke up, I put her to my breast a while, still walking on, and she went back to sleep. We walked the entire day and reached Boacayman, where there was no danger of sinking into the mud, but where we could be attacked. There, Gambo had seen the beginning of the rebellion, where Tant Rose, my godmother, mounted by Ogun, the powerful god of war, called for war and named the chiefs. This Gambo told me. Since that time, Tant Rose had gone from camp to camp, healing people, celebrating services for the Loas, and seeing into the future. She was feared and respected by all, fulfilling the destiny Martine in her Zetual. She had counseled Gambo to find a place under Toussaint Louverture's wing, because that man would be king. When the war ended, Gambo had asked her if, when, if we would ever be free, and she assured him we would. But first, all the whites would have to be, to be killed, including newborn babies, and there would be so much blood on the earth that ears of corn would grow red. I gave more drops of laudanum to the children, make them comfortable among the roots of a large tree. Gambo feared the packs of wild dogs more than humans or spirits, but we did not dare light a fire to keep them at distance. We left the master with the children and the three loaded pistols, sure that he would not leave Maurice's side, while Gambo and I went a little away to do what we wanted to do. Hatred deformed the master's face when I got up to follow Gambo, but he said nothing. I was afraid of what would happen to me later, because I know the cruelty of whites at the hour of revenge, and that hour would come to me sooner or later. I was exhausted and sore from carrying Rosette, but the only thing I wanted was to put my arms around Gambo. At that moment, nothing else mattered. Ersuli, law of pleasure, allow this night to go on forever. This is how I remember it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Do you often relate to your characters in that way, or is there? With pot, you mean? <laughs> no. Sometimes they come to me fully dressed, with a name, with a voice, with a story. Other times I model the characters after someone I have known. And I write about things that I care for and in a way have been my experience or the experience of people around me, even if they happened 200 years ago in Haiti. Culturally, I have no connection to Haiti. Chile is a very different country. so why did I write about that? I mean, why, why was I hooked to the story of slavery and, and to this particular slave? I have no idea. 
And then when I finished the book and the book was published, I learned, because people contacted me, that there are abolitionist movements today in the world because there are more slaves today than ever before in history. There are 27 million slaves that have been counted, and we don't know how many more that have not been counted. And we are not talking only of little girls that are slaves in brothels in Cambodia. We are talking about whole villages of people who are enslaved in what is called debt bondage in places like Pakistan, millions, in sweatshops, in the fishing industry, in the mining industry, everywhere. And uh, this problem exists today. So I, I had no idea when I started. Yeah, I knew this after. So you never know why you write or for whom you write. You know, many, many years ago when they caught Noriega in Panama, remember? When they caught... Um, General Noriega, he had two books with him, The Bible and the House of the Spirits. <laughs> and, and my husband said, you never know for whom you write. <laughs> he's right. With power and impunity, when you are not accountable. from human nature. I mean, there are people capable of doing horrible things, and most people are capable of doing wonderful things. In my lifetime, I have seen the world get better, not worse. I was born during the Second World War, when, when Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bombed, when the, during the Holocaust, when millions and millions of people were, were killed. Um, in my lifetime, I have seen the rise of feminism, of uh, workers' rights, of children's rights, of uh, uh, we are talking about issues that before we never talked about, like the planet and about and like many other things, even spiritual things that were not an issue before. So we seem to be moving in circles, but we really move in, in a spiral, always ascending a little bit. I heard once something that that has become a very important part of my life. Someone said that. There are three basic instincts. The, the instinct of survival, the instinct of reproduction, and the instinct of spiritual evolution that moves us forward always. And that instinct of evolution is not only in us as human beings, it's in nature, it's in, in the universe. Everything moves forward in a way. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think my grandchildren would not, will not live in a planet darkened by ashes where everything has been destroyed and we are eating each other. I think they're going to live in a much better world than I did. Yes. Bueno. She's asking if I think there is a connection between the fact that Haiti is the, one of the poorest countries in the world and it was also the first uh, country that, where a slave revo revolution succeeded. Uh, Haiti was a rich colony because, as I said before, it, wa it was on the backs of these people who were dying to, to keep it going. And then when the rebellion started, they burnt everything. Everything was burnt. And then the revolution was betrayed by its own chiefs, often. 
but it was also blocked by the United States and by Europe because they didn't want the idea of a slave revolt to spread. So um, Haiti was a country that was doomed very early on, and it has been very unlucky in that sense. And right now, if you visit Haiti, the trees are gone. It's just, it's barren because everything was burned, nothing was planted, and when something was planted, again it was burned. So it has been a very uh, unlucky country. But I think it's very dangerous to make the connection between the success of the revolution and the, and the fact that it is so poor today. Yes? You know, I started writing late in my life because I had to support my kids. And uh, so I started writing when I was almost 40 without having any idea of what I was doing. I was telling my daughter-in-law, Lori, I was telling her in the car how easy it was to write the first book because I had no expectations. It was just just put down whatever you want and let's see what happens. I had never read a book review. I had never taken a literary class. I hadn't even finished school. So uh, it was, I wrote from, from a sense of freedom that everything was allowed. And then you start reading the critics. And, then, and, the, and the students who write this awful thesis about whatever they think you have, you have written, they start explaining me my own books. And, and then you, get, you start to get more and more into this straight jacket of, of what is expected, and it's really hard. My agent said, my, my agent is this fat, powerful Catalan woman, no? and I'm terrified of her. And when, when she got the House of the Spirit, she said, this is not a bad book. And, uh, well, everybody can write a first good book because it's their own story. The real writer is proven in the second book. So I immediately started writing the second book to prove to this fat lady that, that, <laughs> that I could be a writer. And I wrote my second book. That was the most difficult. But since then, you think it gets easier? It doesn't. It gets more difficult. And as I change as a person, the writing changes. And as the world changes, when I try to read my first book, The House of the Spirits, I just can't get through the first page. It's so, so many adjectives. The, phrase, the, the sentences are so long. I said, but well, I need an editing here. If I would have to, to write it again, it would have 100 pages less. Just chop the adjectives. And so now I don't write like that. I wait and I, I, I look for a good noun that can replace three adjectives. The sentences are shorter. Well, the influence of, of the United States also of living in English, where the language is much more precise and literature also is more precise and more direct than, than Latin American. I also live with Willie, my husband, who thinks that he speaks Spanish. <laughs> and that is a problem because I end up writing as he speaks. So now I have a person in Spain who reads my manuscripts and takes out all the Willieismos from my book. <laughs> But I'm writing again. I, I took a sabbatical last year, which was a very bad idea. And now I'm trying to write again. And it's taking forever. It, I'm limping into the story without any sense of, of elation as I had before. So I, I don't know. It's not easy. Any other? Yeah. So did you, um, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Or like no, no, no. This is my second choice. I wanted to be a bimbo. <laughs> but I did not have the raw material. 
So, um, I mean, I, I think that very few people are born knowing what they want to do, or, or, or especially a writer, if you're a woman, born in the 40s in Chile. I mean, who are the role models? Gabriela Mistral, who looked like a man, and some spinsters in London that had committed suicide. No, there were, it, it wasn't a good choice. Any other question? Yes, in the back over there. Oh, no, wait a minute. We have enough, enough questions for half an hour here. They can be short answers. So the questions can be long, but the answers have to be short. Fine. What is your opinion about the unification of Latin American countries in the last years? Let me see if I can remember all this. Well, I, being in, in America or being Chilean, I have been a foreigner all my life. I was born in Peru of diplomatic parents. Then my father left. We moved to Chile. My mother remarried another diplomat, and we traveled when I was a child. Then I became a political refugee in Venezuela after the military coup of 1973 in Chile. And I, I lived in Venezuela for 13 years. Then I was passing by uh, California one day, and I met this guy who was introduced to me as the last heterosexual bachelor in San Francisco. <laughs> him. And, uh, and so I moved to the United States and I became an immigrant. So I have had this, this experience of being always a foreigner. And I go back to Chile and I am a foreigner there too. Uh, because I don't fit in anymore. I, I'm used to that feeling. And I feel that I have a foot there and a foot here. And I carry with me all my Latino background that I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose the language, the food, the music, the sense of family, of honor. All those things are really important for me because that's like the foundation of my writing and my life. But I love what America has given me, a sense of freedom. I don't care about anything. I, I'm, I'm here and I feel that, I have a, that I'm valuable for myself. And I have found here love, family, friends, wonderful stuff. And I love this country. I'm not a patriot, for never, but, but I love this country and what it has given me. Um, now, the second question about the, the war between Chile and Peru, I wrote a book about that. I'll give you the book if you give me your, your name. I'll send you the book so that we don't have to talk about it. And, uh, and about the unification of Latin America. That's the question? Yeah, that was the dream of Simón Bolívar. Simón Bolívar's idea was to have a united Latin America that would stand as a powerful continent to Europe and the United States. It never worked because we, if you have two Latin Americans in a room, you have three political parties. <laughs> so, of course, it didn't work. So also, we had no tradition in democracy. Democracy was, was something that we adopted, we, we took from, the, from, from Europe, with no background. So um, it rapidly turned into, into guerrillas and revolutions and chieftains, and we know the history of Latin America. And then we went in, in the 70s through a long period, at least a decade and a half, of awful dictatorships, military dictatorships, promoted and supported by the CIA. 
Because at the time of Nixon and Kissinger, the idea, the time of the Cold War, the idea was that Latin America was part of the area of influence of the United States. And already the Cuban Revolution had succeeded in Cuba, so they would not allow another leftist revolution to happen anywhere in the continent. And there were guerrilla movements, leftist guerrilla movements, all over Latin America. And the way they did it is wipe them out. It was a war of the armed forces and the right-wing conservative forces against the left, and they destroyed it. They won the war absolutely. And then followed this time of dictatorship, which I lived personally, and that's why I escaped from Chile. And um, now we are in a much, much better situation. There are practically no uh, dictatorships in Latin America. There is a, a movement toward a middle left in several countries, powerful countries like Brazil, because the inequality creates a state of violence so awful that you can't control it. So uh, we have <clears throat> learned that cap pure capitalism is not something that we can adopt. And on the other hand, the Cold War is over. So the CIA's eyes are not in Latin America. Fortunately for us, they are in the Middle East. And so um, we, we, are, we are finding our way. And I think it's a very interesting time. Yes. I, I am very flattered. No, really, 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 this is not a joke. I'm flattered that my books can inspire someone to do research or to work on a thesis or, to, or, a, or for a class or for a movie or for whatever. Sometimes it's far-fetched because everything has been already said about everybody. So what, what do you find for a thesis? You have to go to, I don't know, to, to the, to the minutiae. In, in one of my books, for example, I have four theses about the dog in the House of the Spirits, <laughs> Barabbas. So one thesis says that Barabbas is, represents the people of the country that will be killed and, and stepped on and turned into a rug, as the dog was in the house. It's, it's, it's a metaphor. The other one is that he represents the male energy in the house because he's black and powerful and big and sexual. The other, I don't remember the other one, but there are four. Barabbas was a dog. He was a dog. That my grandfather had a dog called Barabbas that was exactly like that dog and died like that dog, so I told the story. And my grandfather, he was my grandmother's dog, really, and my mother adored that dog. And so when the dog was, the, the people were afraid, the neighbors were afraid of the dog because it was so huge, he was a grand, grand dame. And so somebody killed the dog, stabbed the dog to death. It was, it was just horrible. And so my grandfather, trying to please my grandmother, turned the dog into a rug. <laughs> You can imagine. Yeah. So with a family like mine, you don't have to invent anything. So I just wrote the story of the dog. And now I have to put up with the thesis. 
Okay, any questions in the back here? No? Yeah, okay. People who have inspired me, thousands and thousands. I'm a voracious reader. I have ebooks in my iPad, audiobooks in the car, novels on my table. So I'm all the time reading because I, I plagiarize a lot. I copy from other writers. And they, they are, everybody inspires me. Even bad novels sometimes inspire me. And people, people do extraordinary things. And through my foundation, I have seen what people, are, especially women, are capable of doing. And so that is very inspiring. When I wrote The House of the Spirits, everybody compared it to, the, to 100 Years of Solitude of Garcia Marquez. And I felt really good. Because if you're a dancer and you're compared to Nureyev, it's very flattering. Garcia Marquez is the best Latin American writer ever. So to be compared with him was great. Now it doesn't happen anymore, unfortunately. And um, yeah, because I, unfortunately, I found another style, and he's he's old and he's not writing anymore, which is too bad. Actually, no, because I don't have to compete with him. <laughs> um, so the people do inspire me a lot, and sometimes I just look for the inspiration. For example, if I'm reading a novel about a certain theme, that is, I start reading about that. In the case of Haiti, I started reading about, uh, reading novels about the time, which sometimes tell you more than any history book and letters of people who lived at the time. Okay, it's time for, for signing. Okay, one more question. The lady there. The one that is being translated? Okay, it's called uh, Maya's Notebook, and it's a con- to- contemporary, well, it was a contemporary story until the translator picked it up, and um, it happens in 2009 and 10, and it is the story of a young American girl from Berkeley who uh, has a Chilean grandmother, and she's raised by her grandparents. The, gra- the grandfather is not uh, Chilean. He's an African-American man from the United States. And um, this, um, this grandfather, she adores this grandfather, and he dies. Um, and when he dies, she turns 16, she goes crazy. The grandmother falls into a depression. No one is taking care of her. She goes crazy and starts doing drugs and alcohol and getting in trouble and stealing and whatever. She ends up in a terrible situation in Las Vegas. And gets involved with uh, um, drugs and with crime. And eventually, the grandmother, the Chilean grandmother, rescues her and finds her uh, and, uh, and sends her to the southern part of Chile, an archipelago called Chiloé, where she hides in a little island. And so it's the contrast between this world of noise and drugs and and, and and danger and, and, and excitement also that she is, is living here. And then the other world that is medieval, a rural world, magical world where everything still is like in medieval times. And for the first time, she has time to be in silence and to look inside and to look at the people around her and connect. And so it's the contrast between those two lives. It's a 
coming of age uh, book, but it's also a sort of crime story. And I, I, I decided to write that because my husband, my husband was a lawyer. And when he retired, he said that he was going to become a novelist. <laughs> I thought it was incredibly awful. <laughs> awful. I mean, he was trying to compete with me. I said, look, Willie, when I retire, I will be a lawyer. What's this? <laughs> Stupid. Stupid. But he persevered. And he wrote a first novel that was atrocious. And I said, this is just disgusting. Put it in a trunk. You know what the novel was about? It was about an oversexed dwarf. <laughs> I said, Willie, this is the most politically incorrect thing that I've ever read. Put it in a trunk and leave it there. And then it was my stupid idea. He was so depressed after that that... I told him, look, if you're going to write, why don't, you, why don't you write what you know about? You know about crime, about the law, about forensics. Why don't you write police stories, crime novels? So he started to write. And he's, he's right in this very minute, he's in a book tour. And he's not in a book tour. He's in a, in a bookstore in Phoenix with his books. So he has written five. I am pissed. And... and I decided that I was going to write a crime story just to let him know how, how you do it properly. Okay, now we sign. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.